This is Let's Go Michigan with Jeff Sloan on 760 WJR. Your bird's eye view on Michigan's business and entertainment scene. Here's Jeff. All right, welcome to Let's Go Michigan on this beautiful Saturday afternoon, July 8th, right in the middle of summer. Of course, joining me on the show, Kristen Kajawa, Mark Pastoria. Good to have you guys with me today and good to have you all joining us. All right. This past week, I don't know if you guys felt it or are feeling this, but heat records are indeed being broken around the globe. The earth is warming that from north to south as greenhouse gases trap the heat in the atmosphere combined with the now effects from this El Nino effect, the warming in the Pacific that is affecting our weather across the country, including here in the Midwest. During this past week, the three days from July 3rd through the 5th have now been recorded as the hottest in Earth's modern history. Wow. In case anyone wondered, right? There it is. There it is. That's incredible. I actually heard that they take weather samples from like two meters above the Earth's surface all over the Earth, and then they compile them and then create the average, and that's how they got the record number. Interesting. So the temperatures are consistent where they're taken across the globe. Yep. And that is at a height of two meters off the surface of the Earth. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Well, there you have it. Actually, if you need further proof that climate change is indeed real, in addition to the July 3rd through 5th period being the hottest ever recorded, June was the hottest month ever recorded. You know, it's funny in Michigan, it was hot these last few days for sure. But because in Southeast Michigan, we've had so much rain, I'm not going to lie, I kind of enjoyed the heat. Yeah. I actually find this summer here in Michigan, and I've spent some time in Northern Michigan, It's actually, on a few of these days, it's been rather cool. But of course, these are average temperatures taken across the globe and not localized, you know, for example, to Michigan or even the Midwest. So while we may be indeed experiencing either normal or perhaps even on some days below normal temperatures, in fact, across the globe, the average temperatures are up at record levels of heat. All right. And moving on from that, uh, also in this past week, news that is highly relevant, of course, as it relates to the economy. The jobs report released yesterday, U.S. employers added 209,000 workers in June. Now, this is down. It's eased slightly the pace of employment. And that means that there's a economic cooling going on. Perhaps all of the Fed's actions to cool off the economy are indeed beginning to work. Last month's gains were, while down, though still strong, but are showing a downward trend, to be sure. So temperatures up and jobs (laughs) are down? Is that what you're saying? There you go. (laughs) Temperatures are up and jobs are down. It'll be interesting to see how this data impacts the Fed's decision to raise interest rates again or not, whether it holds steady. But it's just been amazing how the job market has held up even in this you know, tough economic time. Of course, we saw layoffs happening in the tech sector and others, but clearly those are a minority of cases as the, the job market remains relatively strong, even though now tending to cool off a bit. And interestingly, this week, the Wall Street Journal also reported that Americans have quit that phenomenon of quitting their jobs. As we know, during the pandemic and just after post-pandemic period, there was this kind of phenomenon of people job hopping, thinking they could just move from one job to the other. I don't want to work here anymore. I'll go down the street and pick up a job somewhere else. Well, in fact, that was the case for a brief period of time. 
But uh, it looks like that is cooling as well as Americans now appreciating the jobs they have, just appreciating the fact they have a job more and more these days. As the job market cools, so does this phenomenon of job hopping, if you will. I think we've just coined a new phrase, job hopping. It's a drop of about 500,000 people from 4.5 million in November 2021 who left their jobs willingly, down to about 4 million who left their jobs in May, reported the Labor Department this past week. So there you have it. The idea of job hopping and like, you know, quitting a job and going to find another one is so exhausting to me. Just stick with your job. I mean, I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> Honestly. Right. I mean, right. just just hunker down. Just stay with what you have. I don't know. I never quite understand. I mean, I do get the idea, especially if you're not being compensated for your job or you're not satisfied with your job to, and the opportunity was available to look for other things, that's fine. But really just, ugh, sounds so exhausting. Well, and of course, exhausting and qualifying it as exhausting is always relative to the potential benefit of making the hop at some price, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be some additional benefit. It's worth being a little exhausted, right? Yeah, but that's at some right. lesser amount as is now beginning to be the case as not only jobs cool off, job openings cool off, but also so are wages beginning to level off. That's right. It's less and less desirable to do that job hopping that was desirable in the pandemic and early post pandemic period. All right, moving on. Here's a really important story. Mosquitoes carrying the deadly parasite that causes malaria. U.S. scientists are hailing a new gene modification technique that leads to the suppression of female mosquitoes, and it's the females who carry the malaria parasite. So by suppressing the female sex, you create a decline in the potential exposure to the malaria virus by humans. And as the lead scientist says in this discovery, The technique is safe, controllable, and a scalable solution the world urgently needs to eliminate malaria. Now, there are about 250 million cases of malaria each year, taking out about 750,000 to a million humans dying every year from malaria. In fact, interestingly, it's mosquitoes who, as a living species, kill more humans than any other species across the globe in a given year. All of the research was published in Science Advances. This is a major, major discovery. If it holds up, looks like it will. Of course, there are going to be ethical questions around the use of the technique. It'll be a hurdle, but nonetheless, being able to target and address those who get the disease and curbing deaths as a result of it is something that just needs to happen. And if you're wondering, is it a threat here in the United States? Well, actually, Yes, it is, surprisingly. Many of us think it's only in some jungle somewhere you have to worry about malaria, but the reality is malaria is indeed circulating in the U.S. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have identified five cases of malaria detected so far this summer, four of them in Florida, one of them in Texas. So indeed, it is here in the U.S., albeit at a low level, relatively speaking. Nonetheless, we don't want any of it. And speaking of mosquitoes, it's not only malaria that we need to worry about. Health officials now, as reported in Bridge, Michigan, have indicated that here in Michigan, mosquitoes have been found now carrying the EEE, the Eastern Equine Encephalitis Virus, and that's a deadly one. We don't want that either. So look, with all of the potential threats that mosquitoes pose, just put on some bug spray before you go out, right? Especially in the evening, especially if you're around areas that are damp and known to breed and harbor mosquito populations, just put on some effective bug spray before you go out and expose yourself. 
And lastly, to close out news that uh, really wasn't about last week, but is about the upcoming week, and that is get ready for Amazon Prime Day sales. Amazon Prime Day, July 11th and 12th. You know, I got to tell you guys, uh, I'm actually, I'm not a big sales shopper, but I have to tell you this year, I'm going to pay attention to it. I've got a daughter going off to college. Great opportunity to pick up deals on electronics and other things to help outfit, in my case, my daughter's dorm room. But huge savings across the board offered at Amazon Prime Day. If you're a member, take advantage of it. If you're not yet a member, maybe think about becoming one. All right, guys, listen, we've got a lot of good stuff coming up later in the show as well. Kristen, what do we have coming up later? Yeah, later in the show, we're going to interview someone from Business Insider about Airbnb and VRBO. And And the kind of the changes going on in that market, right? Really dynamic changes, actually making it a little tougher on those short-term rental hosts. Many, by the way, really raked it in during the heyday of the pandemic and the post-pandemic era. But now... Things turning around, getting more and more competitive, lots of short-term rentals on the market. Again, there's supply outweighing demand, beginning to anyway, changing that market. We're going to feature a story on that. What else, Kristen? Yep, and how about this? RV campers now have an opportunity to stay at wineries, farms, museums throughout the state of Michigan for an overnight stay, so not just at an RV campsite. There's a whole club now and a way to tap into other locations for you to park your RV for the summer or for just travel. And then last we're going to be talking about OceanGate and the uptick now for wealthy travelers still wanting to take these extravagant adventures that are of such high risk. The crazy thing is, as you mentioned, Kristen, it's actually caused an uptick in the interest in doing this kind of adventure travel. I can't believe it. I don't I know what either. people are thinking. Lots of great things you can do that are both stimulating, exciting, interesting, and entertaining that don't have a level of risk anywhere near what you'd be experiencing on some of these crazy adventures. In particular, the wealthy who have the means to do these kinds of things seem to gravitate toward. And we're going to do an interview about that subject coming up. Looking forward to that as well. Guys, you know, during the pandemic, interest in RVs boomed. I mean, literally, the sales skyrocketed. People, of course, couldn't take vacations where they were in and around a lot of other people. And so an RV allowed you to have a in effect, a mobile hotel to go anywhere, but do it in a way where you were able to, in effect, quarantine while traveling and keep distance and so on, stay safe. And interest, while not as significant as it was during the pandemic, has still stayed relatively high. And as the RV experience continues to expand, we've now become aware of a program offered through a company called Harvest Host that's really interesting It allows RV owners to have more of an experience by staying at a location that is highly experiential, say, at a winery or even an alpaca farm or lots of other really cool and interesting places where you can pull up your RV and experience the local destination of interest. Well, telling us all about it, Rose White from MLive.com. Rose Tell us about this new program that's being offered and how it's being embraced. Yeah, it's a company called Harvest Hosts. They're nationally based, but they got started about a decade ago and saw interest really take off during the pandemic. So what they do is they connect businesses with RV campers. So they create sort of this database for people who are RV campers to find places to stay and they find really unique spots. So it's a lot of small businesses like farms, museums, wineries, anything of that nature for RV campers to be able 
able to park there overnight and have just kind of more of a unique experience versus staying in a parking lot or staying in a campground. Yeah, so I certainly get the benefit to those with an RV looking for an interesting destination to stay. Why does a host want to do this? What's in it for them? And I think what they saw was there was interest that took off during the pandemic from consumers. Like you mentioned, people were, there was a big spike in RV sales, but also for businesses, it was a way for them to generate more revenue. So how Harvest Host operates is it's free camping, but members pay $99 a year to access some of these sites. So they don't pay per site necessarily, but what they're asked to do, what members are asked to do is to just patronize the business. So they're asked to buy a meal if they have a restaurant on site, buy a souvenir, do a wine tasting, just anything that would help the business kind of generate some revenue from this partnership. Interesting business model. And not only to encourage the RV owners who stay there to patronize the business, as you say, and to drive revenue accordingly, but also to leave reviews, which helps expose the business post that particular person's stay. And that helps, you know, propagate and create awareness around that business and drive others to be interested in going to visit that business, right? Yeah, exactly. It quite literally puts some of these businesses on the map. I spoke with the Gilmore Car Museum, which is in Hickory Corners, Michigan, right in Barry County. And uh, they talked about how this has been really helpful in boosting their profile for people. So people who wouldn't know where they were or know that we have the biggest car museum in North America right here in Michigan, they're able to find it through this program and be able to stay a night there and learn about everything the Gilmore Car Museum has to offer. Yeah, so give us kind of an overview of some of the different kinds of experiences RVers can enjoy by using this program. Yeah, so there's about 175 Michigan businesses that are enrolled in it. There's a lot of small farms. So there's things like lavender fields that you'd be able to sleep next to, which sounds really peaceful and calm and smooth. Pretty romantic, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, you get the benefit of the calming effect coming right off the lavender fields. <laughs> exactly. Yep. So you can park at some of those for a night. Um, there's alpaca farms in Michigan. I think there's a bison ranch. There's a lot of northern Michigan wineries and breweries and, and just everything that would give you kind of a more unique stay. I think the other caveat to mention here is that because it's not a traditional campground, a lot of these sites don't have hookups. So it's good for maybe mm. a night where you don't need a hookup, mm -hmm. um, but you still want to have that kind of fun experience that's maybe not a campground or something that's a little bit different. You get to wake up to the rolling fields of a Michigan winery. It sounds amazing. Has the program actually gotten underway in Michigan or is this something that's about to happen? Or are there people actually enjoying these sites now using the, the host program? And if so, what kind of feedback are you learning from the people who've used these sites? Yeah, it's it's been rolling in Michigan for a few years. During the pandemic, a lot of businesses started to enroll in the program. That's when the Gilmore Car Museum joined um, as a way to attract people to their business during a really tough time. And so, yeah, I think a lot of these businesses are seeing members come stay with them. And I think, you know, when I spoke with Harvest Host, they said, I asked, you know, what the numbers kind of look like and the data behind it. And they said it really kind of depends on where a business is located. So in some high traffic areas, some of those businesses might be seeing 
three to five guests a night and some might be seen one a week. So it really kind of depends where you are and what kind of destination you are. But what Harvest Host has said is since they launched about a decade ago and they really kind of started to take off about five years ago, members have spent over a hundred million dollars at host locations. So that's just you know, the business revenue. And they're expecting the members to spend another $50 million just this year. So they've really seen interest take off in the last few years. That's incredible. I noted in your piece in MLive.com that Harvest Hosts estimates businesses generate between 12000 and 15000 annually by welcoming RV campers. That's obviously an average. Is that consistent with what you're hearing from Michigan sites that are using the service? Yeah, I mean, that is that is an average, but um, I think that is pretty consistent with what Michigan sites mm-hmm. have said. And, and that's just kind of incremental and, and extra revenue that they're seeing from these guests buying a souvenir, buying a meal. And for the hosts, it's really, you know, not much of a burden for them to just allow an RV to park in their site. Sure. And I know that, you know, for those who own RVs and want to go out and enjoy the great outdoors and all that an RV can offer, one of the issues with RVs as a result of the big boom is that there are limited places to go as a result of the popularity of this. You've got to get your reservations in for the best sites long before. And so this provides an additional way to enjoy your RV, have a unique experience. I mean, these experiences sound amazing. Again, from wineries to lavender fields to alpaca farms, of all things. I think one of the host sites mentioned that we're like a resort without the rooms. You know, you bring your room, we'll provide everything else. I think it's great. And uh, clearly it's working for everyone involved, for the RV owner, for the host site, driving that additional revenue. It's found money in a way, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I asked the Harvest Host COO just kind of what his favorite destination was. And he said it was, that's like asking to pick a favorite child, but he did <laughs> sort of um, right. highlight Michigan for its its diversity of destinations. So he says there's a lot of really unique spots in Michigan that people can find places to stay. Yeah. And while on the surface of it, the whole RV industry seems like a niche or boutique one, Not so fast. RV Industry Association survey, as you point out in your article, found that 37% of American vacationers, 67 million people, plan to take an RV trip this year. I'd call that mainstream. I'd call that important to any recreation and outdoor industry in any given state. Certainly, we're happy to have that business here in the state of Michigan. Rose White, MLive.com. Thanks so much for being on and bringing the story to us. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so Kristen, Mark, I have to ask you guys, what do you think about this new RV experience? I love it. I've actually done an RV trip with my family, and the idea of being able to park the RV for a night at a winery or in a lavender <laughs> well, field. Anything. Listen, you'd park your you'd park your two seater car at a winery hey, overnight no, if you could. Hey, no. What's the year pass over there? <laughs> Who yeah. needs the RV? Yeah, right. I don't need, no. need a membership pass for right, that. Right, no, right. but I love the idea of just being able to offer my family another way to see a different venue. Because when you have an RV, usually you're locked into that campsite. And then that's the only place you stay. Not many people tag their car behind their RV. So this right. way you're able to take Take your RV, stay a night somewhere else at a location that you might not normally pick. I love it. I think it's really cool. I think it's very cool as well. Mark, you in? Oh, I'm in. Yeah, that's great. Especially that yeah. winery trip, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's, it's Mark, you're not going to be uh, pulling your RV up to an alpaca farm, I have a feeling. <laughs> no. but, but the winery you're in for. 
Well, listen, I think it's really cool as well, guys. I love it too. And I think one of the things on the business side of this for those locations now that are benefiting from this, it's just a great way to earn incremental money. You allow someone to come up and in some cases have the spot for free. In other cases, they may charge for it. But where they really make their money is they've got you captive. That's right. You know, if you're sitting next to the winery, you know where you're getting your wine that night. And it's a great boom for the businesses that are now offering the service. Really cool model. Offered again by Harvest Host. Check them out. All right, listen, guys, we just finished a segment talking about how interest in RVs and ownership in RVs, RV sales boomed during the pandemic. Well, the same happened with these short-term rentals offered through companies like Airbnb, VRBO, etc. Lots of interest in these short-term rentals instead of being in a real community or communal-oriented place like a hotel, for example, where you've got to go through the lobby and all the rest, people had their own place to stay, their own home, rented on a short-term basis. It's become more and more popular, although it's become so popular as demand has grown, so has supply, of course. You know, anytime a market gets hot, you have lots of people wanting to take advantage of it. Now, many people, even investors, people that are in this as a business now, owning these short-term rentals has increased the supply significantly. And that has begun to present challenges in the marketplace for those who are hosting those short-term rentals. Really, for the first time in a while now, seeing a bit of a slowdown, seeing some deals, and perhaps even those hosts having to get more creative in order to get their short-term rental rented this summer. Maybe even deals might be available. Who knows? Be on the lookout. This summer might have interesting deals as a result of the more challenging market right now. Well, we've got Dan Latou from Insider.com bringing us the story. Dan, tell us about what's going on in the short-term rental market these days. Yeah, it's definitely a really confusing summer if you are an Airbnb and VRBO host. Demand is still very high. People are still booking short-term rentals. People still want to travel, even in the space of economic uncertainty. People are still choosing weekend getaways. But there's more listings than ever. It's more competitive than it ever has been. The years of 2021 and 2022, one expert told me, you know, it was easy enough to pitch a tent and you could get booked out on Airbnb. (laughs) Those days are long gone. Now, not only have listings returned, but there's a new wave of investors. So guests just have more options than ever to pick. And they kind of have the upper hand when it comes to pricing and stays. And when you talk about there's a new wave of investors, what you mean by that is that that has added to the supply side of the dynamic because these investors recognize the, as you mentioned in 2021 during the pandemic and so on, there was just a voracious appetite, as you say, like that. You could pitch a tent and, and rent it out on a short-term basis. And so investors came into the market, bought up properties and listed them for short-term rent on these various sites. And that drove part of the supply dynamic that we're seeing right now. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, 2021 and 2022 were already anomalies. People had either taken their listings off because they didn't want to rent in the period after the lockdown, or they were using them themselves. You know, they were second homes that they took their families to. So all of those listings essentially came back, plus people who saw that this was a lucrative business. There have been record amounts of listings for Airbnb and Verbo listings Mm -hmm. nationwide. AirDNA, I think, said at the beginning of this year, there was almost like 1.4 million listings in the U.S., Wow. And as you point out in your article, as many as 90% of summer travelers have changed their plans to be more budget friendly. So they may have booked a while ago, but now opting for cheaper options, given the uh, challenging economic times consumers are facing, that's contributing to the problem on the demand side. 
Yeah, it's it's this interesting thing where people still want to travel. And even at the beginning of the year when people were forecasting, whether it was a recession or some sort of downturn, people were still predicting that consumers were going to put money towards travel. And that seems to be holding up, but they're doing it more budget conscious. So, you know, whereas in the past, maybe it was a week long stay, hosts are seeing much shorter trips of like weekends or an extra day here and there they're seeing guests be really price sensitive. So I talked to some hosts who said, you know, they wake up every day and they're checking to see the pricing in their area and try to make them the cheapest listing in the area so that guests choose them. Because that seems to be something people are really valuing right now is still getting to travel, but on a much more budget conscious way. And then some hosts are throwing in upgrades, if you will, or power-ups as they've been referred to to make their particular option more enticing and more desirable and therefore hopefully get it rented. Yeah, it's kind of funny. So there's, you know, there's a typical ways you could try to attract more guests, you know, lower your price would be number one. I see some hosts who are taking away requirements like cancellation windows, you know, right. In the past, they said you couldn't cancel within 60 days. Now they waive that to try and get more bookings. And then, yeah, there's this kind of like video game element happening. One VRBO host told me that if you're a good host, you kind of collect these points, these boosts and power-ups, and she's kind of cashing them in to bump her listing higher in the algorithm. So hopefully she's trying to get like maybe a last minute booker who is waiting till the final hour to get a cabin or something. And it's just sees hers first and takes it. Interesting. So would it be fair to say that because this is largely just like the big boom in 2021 was driven by all that increased demand, now in tough economic times, again, hopefully we'll be able to look back on this and say this was also relatively short-term in nature. But nonetheless, the long-term outlook for the market is still very strong, even with the increased supply and the temporarily, at least we hope, decreased demand. Is that fair? Yeah, it's it's still very unclear. One kind of economist who watches this space said that they're calling it kind of the great moderation. So, you know, things got very inflated in the aftermath of the pandemic, and now they're coming back down a little bit. People are still choosing to travel short-term rentals. So as long as that holds up, there still is going to be a very strong market for it. What's going to be interesting to see is on the host side, if the math continue to make sense, if they're able to bring in enough revenue, enough bookings to make their investment sound. Really interesting. You know, I think that those still looking, I mean, here we are only roughly a third into the summer. Might we see good deals then, therefore, popping up in the marketplace if people are willing to be patient and wait? Again, as we're only a third into the summer, might for the rest of the summer, if you're a savvy shopper, can you find deals out there? Well, yeah. I mean, a lot of that is the balls in the court of the hosts and how far they want to go in their discounts. But so many hosts are telling me that the properties are doing well are on the budget end or the very high end. So yeah, if you're a guest who is searching for the best deal, you definitely have the upper hand, it seems, for now. Okay, very cool. Dan Latou, thanks for bringing this uh, to our attention. We appreciate you being on with us very much, Dan. Thanks so much. All right, so once a darling industry, short-term rentals, those companies, VRBO, Airbnb, we all know them well, whether we've used them or not. It's a changing time. Let's see if this is a short-term challenge for this industry sector or whether it's a challenge that's here to stay as this market now begins to mature more and more and supply now begins to meet demand more effectively. Again, anytime that happens, you're going to see challenges for those who are on the business side of the equation and uh, be interesting to follow the story and see where it all goes. All right. 
Now, close out our show today. This is just a story that is sad, confusing, conflicting, and just surprising in so many ways. Of course, we all know the story of the submersible. We were all just tuned in, sitting on pins and needles. The Ocean Gate submersible that went down to the Titanic, of course, it imploded, resulting in the death of five people on board and really highlighting the risk of this kind of, as it's qualified, adventure travel, not only expensive, but dangerous. And yet people still want to do it. People still do it. People still paying a big price tag to do it. And the most amazing thing is, guys, Kristen, Mark, interest in adventure travel on the heels of the death of these five people in the recent Ocean Gate tragedy. There's actually been an uptick in interest in the market to do more and more of this kind of thing. I just don't get it, as I said, and as I qualified it when we just introduced it a minute ago. It's stunning and surprising and so confusing to me. So many wonderful things to do in life that don't carry this level of risk. What do you think? Yeah, those thrill seekers are looking for their next high, if you will. And I think social media has a lot to do with that. I mean, they see these adventures on TikTok or they see it on the gram or whatever their Facebook, whatever they're on. And I think they think it's so cool. And it is. I mean, the idea of it is so cool, but not for the risk. I don't care if it's, you know, $3,000 or $30,000 or $300,000. If I could potentially die, no, no thanks. Right. If the odds are (laughs) as significant as they are. And of course, they are high, relatively speaking. Too high for me, too high for you, apparently. And I think you make up an important point, Kristen. A lot of these things get romanticized and glamorized, if you will, on social media and other places. You know, you've got Jeff Bezos going up in his own rocket. He was able to make it successfully. Of course, uh, William Shatner followed him shortly thereafter going up in the Bezos rocket. You know, and of course, every year, lots of people go to Mount Everest. And there's all the kinds of these things going on. But interest continues to climb despite the risks. And uh, we've got Michaela Friel from Insider.com covering a story for us. Michaela? Tell us what's behind this. Are people really, really more and more interested in taking these trips despite the risks? Yeah, so, you know, high-risk travel isn't something that's unusual. You just have to look at Mount Everest. People pay thousands of dollars, and there's been more than 300 known deaths over the years, and it's still so popular. A couple of other examples, you know, we all know about the trips to space, tornado chasing, And you would think that the sad news of those five men's deaths last week would deter people from taking on this kind of travel. But you could also argue that the controversy that surrounds it actually encourages people. I recently read a report by CNN where they interviewed Philip Brown, who's the founder of luxury travel firm Brown & Hudson. And they've actually partnered with OceanGate, the company that that submersible which imploded was behind. And in this interview, Philip said that they actually haven't had any cancellations on their excursions since the news and actually they've had even more inquiries. So it's very surprising actually when you when you look at it like that. Yeah, and you have many examples of this going on in popular culture these days. You even have Jeff Bezos going up in his own rocket and taking such seemingly what seemed to be such a huge risk doing it. You have, as you say, others climbing Mount Everest and it goes on and on. What do you think is the psychology? I mean, (laughs) I don't know. I have trouble understanding someone who's got the privilege of such a seemingly wonderful life in place in order to be able to amass the kind of fortune it requires in order to go on these adventures. 
yet they're willing to put all of that at great risk. What is behind this? What's the psychology driving this desire? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Yes. In many cases, literally the million-dollar <laughs> question. Yes. Yes. I, I think that you could argue really that, you know, some people have such a level of wealth and privilege that they almost kind of feel untouchable. I'm not saying that was the case, of course, for those five men. Sure, we're not making any specific comment on any particular person. But in general, I think you're right. I think that some of these people feel like they have superpower because they've achieved the what seemingly is the impossible with their own success in many cases. Absolutely. And it just seems to be a phenomenon that keeps growing. And it will be interesting to see, especially with Virgin Galactic facing criticism for launching its first commercial space flight less than a week after that submersible tragedy. It'll be interesting to see if these companies continue to get criticised or if in a few weeks and the news cycle dies down, it will just be kind of back to normal. We will have to wait and see and no doubt there's going to continue to be risks taken by those that can afford to take them that you've just made clear, no cancellations, no drop off in demand. And in fact, many report an increase in demand, amazingly. And I guess they feel the odds are sufficiently in their favor enough to warrant the risk. And you've mentioned that sometimes there's a superpower thing going on that, you know, I'll be able to make it through somehow. I've achieved other things in my life that are seemingly impossible. Do you think some of it also might be driven by the fact that these people who achieve this great wealth and success in their lives need to look for the next great thrill? Yeah, I mean, I I certainly believe that could be part of it. When you have a certain amount of money and and every door is open to you, then perhaps the typical travel excursion that someone like you and I would enjoy is no longer fulfilling to that type of person. But then you could also argue that there's the human aspect of it. There's that curiosity. And although you would like to think that everyone is informed before they take on something like this and that they know what they're getting themselves into, we have so much content online of these kind of excursions. If you look at TikTok and YouTube, and it glamorizes it in a way. Yeah, you hate for it to have to come at the kind of cost it did for those personally involved in any of these tragedies, whether lost on Everest or lost at the bottom of the sea. You know, these are no doubt great personal tragedies. But I think you're also you're right in pointing out that these tragedies do have the effect of maybe creating some more sober, well-rounded view on the risks associated with taking these things. But even so, seemingly, as we both mentioned in this discussion, yet no drop off in interest in these kinds of things. There are other adventures that people are paying for that are highlighted in the article that uh, include, for example, adventures to Antarctica, which can cost up to $30,000 and in some cases more even. Yeah. So like what you said, people are spending thousands of dollars on all sorts of trips. People are paying 750000 to visit Challenger Deep, which is the deepest known point in the ocean. Unfortunately, I found out that the 19-year-old who died in the submersible, he actually lived in my city, Glasgow, and attended the same university that I did. And it's been such a shock. Well, the reality is we can relate to that young man and his father, I think, more closely Because they were not researchers, they weren't experts, they were those going down because they wanted to experience the mission and be able to have that in their personal repertoire of experiences. They took that risk, much like, for example, we can relate to, say, Krista McAuliffe, who was lost on the Challenger 
in the Challenger disaster in 1986. You know, when you think about that loss, you certainly feel for the astronauts and their families, but there was something just so tragic about losing that school teacher who we could all relate to. And I think that's kind of the loss of an average citizen who was going to experience and enjoy something like that is something we all can think about and relate to and put ourselves in that place maybe and kind of feel the tragedy even more deeply. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very eye-opening. Well, this is an amazing story, an enlightening one, an eye-opening one for many reasons. I think, you know, the human spirit has always been a pioneering one. People have always taken risks. You see people take risks that result in the advancement of humanity in many ways, astronauts, for example, and others. But in those cases, they're doing it with a very clear purpose and a very clear benefit on the back end that is significant. In this case, this is nothing but pure thrill-seeking, you know, not necessarily for scientific research or any kind of advancement whatsoever, other than the personal thrill associated with taking the risk. We appreciate you bringing the story to us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. All right, there you have it. Adventure travel for someone else, for sure. Not us. Not us anytime soon. We're sticking with the RV. We're sticking with the RV. There you go. Love that. Indeed. That's a risk that is low. And that makes the point, actually. You know, there is something you can do where the risks are relatively low and the rewards significantly high. All right. Listen, guys, great show. Fun doing it with you. Enjoy your great Michigan weekend. Back with more next week, of course, in our one o'clock time slot right here on WJR with Let's Go Michigan. 